morning, everyone. Uh, before we get started, uh, let me say a word on behalf of Justice Designate Riggs. Um, she is finishing up work at the Court of Appeals today and will be sworn into this court hopefully this afternoon. Um, but she will have the right to participate in these cases. Uh, should she choose to do so, she'll watch the uh, video and then uh, will participate in the decision. That being said, uh, our first case for today is uh, Surgeon et al. versus TKO Shelby et al. And we will hear from the appellant. May it please the court, my name is Michael Carpenter and I represent the defendants, appellants, TKO Shelby LLC and Travis K. Ostrom. I'm here with uh, co-counsel uh, Jeremy Stevenson. He represents two other defendants in the case. Uh, he will be arguing the rebuttal this afternoon or this morning. Uh, we'd like to reserve eight minutes for the rebuttal. Your Honors, this case, as you know, is a is a direct appeal from a class action certification granted at the trial court level. Um, it comes directly to your court by statute. Uh, the big issue in this case is, well, I'm going to intertwine the two issues really, is ascertainability and conflict of interest. Those are the two primary issues, and it's somewhat unique to this case, somewhat not unique to this case. Uh, North Carolina law on class actions is somewhat limited, at least at the state level, so we borrow a lot from the federal courts who have a lot of class action uh, jurisprudence out there. The balance uh, of, of the judicial circuits, uh, federal judicial circuits, have found that ascertainability is an issue. Uh, they sometimes call it by administrative feasibility or some other term, but the inherent fact is you have to be able to identify the people who are in the class. If you can't effectively and competently identify the people in the class, you can't have a class. Uh, that's inherent in North Carolina law as well, and there's some cases from North Carolina have touched on that but none that have directly addressed it in the same way that some of the federal circuit court cases. I think this case presents an opportunity to more directly address the issue uh, because we have a, what I will say is somewhat unique to this case issue, and I'm gonna call it the musical chairs problem in this case. Um, there are, this is a class action based around mailers uh, that were sent out. Many of you have probably received them at your homes from a car dealership that says, scratch off and win. You can come to the dealership, you might win a new car or get money or some other kind of prize. Uh, these are pretty common. Um, in this particular case, the plaintiffs have sued, claiming that they are uh, entitled to the prize, uh, even though they did not have the activation code, the correct unique code that entitled them to the prize, but they're entitled to the prize based on the wording of the, uh, of the mailer itself. And that 927 other people are also entitled to that prize. The prize is $20,000. So they're saying that 20, 000, uh, 927 people are entitled to the $20,000 prize. The problem in the case is there is no way to identify who the 927 people are because by the plaintiff's own admissions, the, the, the group that they're going to mail the notices to is going to be over-inclusive and they're going to be extras within that group. The problem is, and this is where the musical chairs comes in, 
uh, there's 927 seats at most. There may be less. The 927 represents what's called the ups that's referenced in the brief. And so that's people who came to the dealership. So I want to ask you about that because I, I'm confused about a couple different things. So the first is, as I read the order, it never says there's a cap of 927 people. It says the class consists of around 927 or approximately, I think, at another point, 927. So wh why that specific number? Where did that come from? And why does it really matter? Suppose, you know, for example, is 1,500 approximately 927? Not really, if it turned out you found that many eligible class members, but would that mean the class couldn't be certified? That's what I'm trying to understand. Wh why that number and is that a limit on the class certification language at the end of the order? Well, in the order it addresses, it talks about the 927, and it's at here, uh, page 618, class consists of approximately 927 people. Uh, that's right, the, and, well, and this is internally inconsistent. It's, I'm sorry to cut you off, but it says 927 people who called the number and showed up at the dealership. But then if you look in the, at the actual class that was certified later in the order, it doesn't say who called the dealership and then it, it just says people who showed up at the dealership. So which is it? Because I think a lot of the arguments you're making about conflicts or over or under inclusivity turn on which of those two is the class. I think that's an excellent question. Uh, the facts and there, there's the admitted facts in the case, I think the facts admitted by both sides are there was no more than 927 people who showed up at the event. So the, the cap, as a matter of fact, can only be 927 people. So that's where that comes from. You're right, the wording in the order is kind of inconsistent, and you've got these, if you saw the Venn diagram in our brief, you've got these different groups that kind of overlap, but not entirely, and there's different numbers applicable to all of them. And so there is a lot of confusion there. That's one of the issues that we've, we've sort of raised as, as a problem, is how do you identify, how do you get down to the number of the people who actually did all of the things that are required for them to have, according to the plaintiffs, their, their theory of the case, win the prize. And, and according to their theory, you have to gotten the mailer, called the number and made the appointment, and come into the dealership. The problem is those numbers are vastly different. The top number is 50,000, the next number is around 2,000, and then the next number is this 927. And then the other problem with the 927 is within that, it's not exclusive to people who, who got the mailer. There, some of these 927 people were people who just were, they just decided to come in by, they needed a new Nissan. They wanted a new car that day, so they just happened to be there. The 927 is not limited to people who got the flyer. People who were driving down the road saw that they were having a tent event and giving away free food and prizes and decided I'll stop in and, and see what's going on. So the, the problem we have in the case is getting down to that 927. But as I understood the facts, you do know who the mailer was sent to. We have the 50,000 names of who the mailer was sent to. That's correct. So, and the, and the court defined the class as all individuals who received at their place of residence a, content, a contest flyer promoting a contest. You, we have those names, all the people who received it. And then the only other thing the class, to be a member of the class, is which had the scratch off number that matched the number for prize five and who went to Nissan of Shelby to claim their prize. And it's the, sec the second category is the 927. Um, and, and first I wanna make sure I understand, you're not contesting any of the findings of fact of the trial court, right? 
I wouldn't say that we're not contesting any of them. There's some, and, and there, I will say the order, the way it's laid out, it's not laid out separately with findings and conclusions, so they're kind of mixed up. I'll say that some of the things that we're trying to contest are conclusions of law, some of our findings of fact, and some of them it's kind of a little hard to tell from the order whether they might be mixed or a little bit of both. Um, well, then specifically, isn't the question of whether class member identification can be completed administratively, isn't that a factual question that the trial court's in the best position to assess? I think there's a factual question, some factual findings to be made about who potentially could be in the class, the groups of documents you look at to decide that. But it's a conclusion of law, I believe. Is it administratively feasible and is it ascertainable? That, I believe, is a conclusion of law based on the facts. But, but is the question of whether or not it can be administered, what is the legal issue that comes into that question? Why isn't that a fact, just a basic factual question? You know, either we have the data or we can get the data in some way or we don't, we can't possibly get the data. Where is the, I don't understand the, what's the legal issue in that calculus. You mean from the ascertainability standpoint? Or well, I do understand that's, that whether, you know, that you have to prove ascertainability is a legal proposition. But whether or not you can, the question of whether or not you can actually identify these class members as defined in this order, why isn't that a factual question? Well, I think whether the class is ascertainable is a conclusion. The process and the end, I think the end result of that, the end result of, as a matter of fact, these people are in the class, that is factual. But we haven't got to that yet. That's the part we're missing, and I think that's the thing that we are, we are saying is there's not a way with the facts that were in front of the court at the motion uh, to grant class certification to get past that hurdle of the ascertainability conclusion of law to even get to the place where you can try to do it. But to accept your um, argument that it's not possible to ascertain who, um, who, who, which of the, um, so we know everybody who got the flyer, but in order to ascertain um, who the 927 people who were actually showed up, you, we have to agree with you that we can't rely on their own testimony to that effect, or facts that they might bring to bear. They might be able to um, recall specifically what they were doing that day, or um, in this day and age of cell phones, people can go back to 2018 and show you on Google Maps where they were at that day. My point being, there might be all sorts of types of evidence that uh, individual claimants can bring forward in affidavits to prove that yes, they actually were at the dealership um, during the period in question. And to accept your argument, don't we have to say that we can't consider that evidence? I think the issue, and this is coming from the other cases, is it's that exact process of are you going to take a census basically of all 927 people and get them 927 affidavits or 927 depositions because the problem you have is do you then rely on 927 people to say truthfully whether they were at the dealership that day or not. Think of the, the situation could occur where they get something in the mail and notice that says, hey, you won $20,000. Tell us if you came to the dealership that day to, and, because if you did, you might have won $20,000. I will bet that we will get more than 927 mailers back or affidavits back saying that, yes, we were at the dealership that day and we want $20,000. That's something that you can't, it's an intractable problem. And unless we do sit down and do 927 depositions, there's no way for us from the defense side to be sure that those people are actually in the class. And the reason this makes a big difference as opposed to some cases 
is in some cases like a settlement class is what people are more used to. You've got a pot of money and the people who are applying for the money with affidavits and stuff are applying from the same pot of money. The pot's not getting any bigger or smaller. In this case though, the pot of money is going to expand or contract depending on the class members because under the plaintiff's theory, every class member who showed up at the dealership adds $20,000 more to the pot of money. And so that, that becomes the issue. It's sort of a chicken and the egg in some ways, which is there's no way to know how many, how you're gonna split it until you know how many people are there, but you don't know how many people are there until they apply, and after they've applied, you've already told them they could win $20,000. But isn't the enterprise of uh, reviewing affidavits and determining credibility of witnesses, that's a core function that courts do all the time, even in class actions? I could not find any cases that had the exact sort of the similar fact pattern here where you would have to do it on the scale that would be required in using the kind of facts that would have to be required here. There are some cases that I think both sides maybe sub submitted in their briefs where some affidavits or additional fact finding was allowed, but it tended to be very limited and in order to ascertain, you still had to have a solid foundation of the documents in order to build from. Well, and just one final question. What significance, in your view, should we give to the fact that the records of who did actually show up, there was a record, it was, it's, it, and it's um, apparently now not available, but the defendants had, at one point in time, the names of the 927 who showed up. So, and that's, I think that's an issue that's actually not addressed in the order, and I think the plaintiffs will probably have raised it in their briefing, will probably raise it with you as, as sort of a spoilation type argument, but one, I can't, I don't think there's any North Carolina case that's directly addressed that within the class cert environment, but, but second, the, the trial court didn't make any findings. It, the trial court didn't make any findings of fact to say there was spoilation, there should be some inference, or somehow we should move the needle, move the burden from one side to the other, because it's, the way class cert works in North Carolina is the burden's on the plaintiffs in order to prove these things. It's not on the defendants to prove these people are not in the class. It's on them to prove that they are in the class. And I think the, what the plaintiffs are attempting to do here is switch that around and put the burden back on the defendants to prove versus the plaintiffs. But and you're also telling us that um, because there's 927 and you can't possibly review all those affidavits that, they, that they, the plaintiffs can't come, that, you initially had the evidence of who the, of who the 927 show-ups were. Um, it doesn't exist now. You're saying, well, the burden is on them to show that they actually came, but then you're telling us, no, we can't possibly rely on affidavits from them to determine it. I think that the issue here is just the facts as they lay uh, before everyone. And there is actually no finding in the order or in the record. There's actually nothing in the record really to support that there was any kind of destruction or, or like intentional deletion of any of these documents. Um, there, there's no findings in that. There's really nothing in the record to directly support that. In fact, if you look at the record, it's relatively muddled. If you look at some of the transcripts, there's about four different things that are said about actually whether any of this information was really even in the records, how much of these records were kept, and then if so, what happened to them. So I think to a certain extent, that's a, an issue that's not been addressed and I don't think could be addressed until later proceedings. Uh, in, in the case, but for purposes of class certification, you typically don't consider that until you get to the point, you have to, you have, to have your hands around who is in the class first before you then use, I guess, spoilation, which is effectively what the plaintiffs are saying, 
as something to usually use as a jury argument. It's usually something that's used in front of the jury for fact-finding purposes. And to address uh, Justice Earls, one of your other questions, I, I think the alternative here, and I think maybe your question is, well, what's the alternative? I think the alternative here is these people could file cases. The, there's 900 people. Well, I wouldn't relish the fact of, of potentially defending 900 separate cases. The reality is, in how many years since this event has gone on, since 2018, we're about five years out, only two people have brought a case. If you look at the numbers, only less than 5% of the people who got the mailer even called in to ask about it. So, Council, not Council uh, your, your argument against ascertainability seems to boil down to the class is not ascertainable because people lie. In part. Am I missing something? I think, in part, that is the issue. It's, it, it comes down to a how do you get from point A to point B? And in this case, the plaintiff's resolution of how you get from point A to point B is you rely solely on what these people say, knowing that when they say it, they're going to be saying it with knowledge that their answer could depend on whether they get $20,000 or not. And I think that is a, that's a problem. But you do have a list, don't you, of people who um, called in the number on the mailer and made appointments. So that would be an easy way to <clears throat> at least do some initial filtering, wouldn't it? If someone claims to have, uh, you know, be, to be in the class, their name would have to show up on, on that list. So th 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 there are some indicia of reliability. You can filter down from the 50,000 to a smaller number. Isn't it, what, what's that number, is it about 1,200? The number, uh, two, uh, well, it depends on what number you're looking at, sort of within the groups that are talked about in the order. There was a two thousand, approximately 2,000 people, and then there was about 1,100, uh, 1,200 people who actually made appointments, but only 900 people were at the dealership that day. We just don't know how many of the- Council, this is a good point for me to jump back in, because I, I hadn't finished my original line of questioning before we kind of went down this ascertainability line of questions and I, I won't, so I want to get back to, let, so let me ask you my, um, what I was getting at with the initial question. So you tell me, in your view, who are the class members? Are they the people that got the mailer and then showed up at the dealership? Or are they the people who got the mailer, called the number, as the mailer said, made an appointment and then went to the dealership? The latter. In your view, which of those two? It would be the latter. Well, that's not what the classification order says. I understand that, but that. Well, how, then how can that be the, the class? That, that is the argument, and that's the position that the plaintiffs are taking for their unilateral contract theory, is that in well, order Okay, to, so this is what I wanted to, to get to. How yeah. does the contract claim, how could that possibly be certified if the language that's in the order of the class that they certified is a class? Because there are crazy bananas conflicts here between different people in terms of the um, class, not to mention all the other problems, because... As, you, as I read the, this mailer, when I get it, I can think of several different contract arguments. It's much stronger if I followed the instructions on the card and called and made the appointment and so on and so forth and showed up than somebody that got this card and said, I think I have a winner and just ignored the multiple times when it says call the number and just showed up. But both of those people are in the class as certified on page 621 of the record. So what, what do we make of that? Even you keep talking about the ups and all these, and, but that's not what the class that was certified. So. It, I, th I, think it, it is, I think it's an intractable problem. Uh, there, there is a discrepancy between the people that have to have proven, in order to get the breach of contract claim, 
which would be inclusion in the class, has a set slightly, as you pointed out, a slightly different set of factors than what is actually in the class cert definition. So I, there is an internal inconsistency in the order that I think presents its own issue. Um, and, and the problem is here. Now would that preclude class certification or would that mean we just have to send it back, tell the court you need to, you know, we, we've got to have an internally consistent order so you've got to do it again. I, I don't think this class can ever be certified because of the facts as they are um, on the ground in this case. Just with the, the uh, you look at the Venn diagram, you kind of look at the different groups. I don't think there is a way to get from point A to point B to solve for this. And it doesn't mean class actions have a good purpose in our system, they do. But they're not for every case. Not every case is a class action. Not every case should be certified as a class action because it can be ripe for abuse and it can cause a lot of problems like this where it's more trouble than it's worth or it creates what could amount to a due process issue for the defendants where we may be stuck having to quote unquote take their word for it from the plaintiff's side whether they came to this event or not and trying to figure out who these plaintiffs are. And the big, and in this case, why it makes such a big difference is for each one of those people you add, it's $20,000. We're not talking about one of these class, like a coupon case, where it's a buck 50, where it's a dollar 50 based on if you add or delete a particular member. Here, it's, just a, it's over $18 million. If you take the 900 people, if they were able to prove that all 900 people, which they won't, because I think they've already admitted there are extras in there, it would be over $18 million. Versus right now, there's only two people we know that actually did all the things they were supposed to do per the plaintiff's uh, theory of the contract, and those are the two class reps. We don't know about any of the rest of them. And where it's going to put the defendants is we're going to be forced into this sort of claims process that's not really, it's an administrative claims process. That's not the way we handle judicial actions in North Carolina. You do it based on evidence and proof and an opportunity for cross-examination and a, a notice and a hearing. You don't do it based on, hey, everybody submit in a claim form and tell us whether you get $20,000 or not. That's not, that's not an adequate clear, something you just said. So um, it's Surgeon and Lepley Star, the two named plaintiffs in this case. Of the two categories we're talking about, the class that's certified, which is get the mailer show up at the dealership, or the ups, this more complicated category, which of those two are, are they in? And there's, is there any dispute about that? They got the mailer, called the hotline, and came. So they fulfilled so, all right. of the fact. They are not in the group of people who may have just shown up at the dealership, which is part of the class as certified. Correct. That, that's right. That's and your correct. argument is there's a conflict here because those people have much weaker claims that you might have to argue in different ways than the people that, fought, that are the ups, that followed all the rules of the contest. And we would be entitled to cross-examine those people because, uh, as Justice Earl said, there's you know, maybe they could come up with evidence, but we would need to look at the evidence. And then you're doing 927 mini trials, little mini, mini hearings with all these class members, and that is not the way class actions work. And that kind of defeats the whole point of a class action. There's a lot of case law, uh, both the Blitz case in North Carolina is kind of, I think, the most seminal and the most closely similar case here, because it was literally 978 people who were at issue there. And uh, the court there said that that, that class cannot be certified because you're going to have to talk to all 978 of those people to decide whether, in that case, they consented to receive the facts or not. So it's going to be the same thing here. We're going to have to talk to all 927 people, or however, it actually be more than that, because if they're sending a notice to over 1,000 people, we're going to have to talk to all 1,000 people who claim that they came to the dealership to figure out whether they actually did or not. 
or whether they're just in it for the $20,000. And that, that is really where the due process issues, the administrative issues lie. And I think that's why this class cannot be certified in any form. Uh, I, I, I just don't think the, a class sits in this case. That doesn't mean these people don't have options. The two class reps can continue their claims, have a jury trial on them. Any, anybody else out there who also thinks they have a claim can bring it and we can deal with it. It's just not right for class certification. And I see I'm over my time. I want to share some time for rebuttal with Mr. Stevenson. Unless anyone has any more questions for me, I'll, I'll sit down. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. Please, the court. My name is Fred Berry. I'm here along with my partner, John Bloss, and my partner, Robert Hunter, and we represent the plaintiffs and the class in this action. We think that the, uh, the findings of fact made by uh, Judge Briggs, uh, Bridge, uh, Briggs, uh, Bridges, excuse me, uh, uh, were supported by the evidence and uh, as the uh, most recent case on class certification says, McMillan versus Blue Ridge, this court's uh, decision, uh, the uh, touchstone for appellate review of, uh, it, of uh, trial court's certification order is honoring the broad discretion that the trial court has. Uh, I wanna talk about uh, the several issues, one is ascertainability, the other is conflict, uh, and uh, say that uh, first off, Judge Bridges thought about all of those things and, and made the decisions that he did. Uh, ascertainability is, uh, is a requirement. Uh, the defendants argue for a heightened third uh, circuit standard of ascertainability, saying it's gotta be easy, uh, and, and that's an adjective that would be placed on ascertainability. Uh, the uh, Judge Bridges found that the identity of the class members could be ascertained uh, through the claims process. So uh, the, by, in effect, Judge Bridges uh, determined that the ascertainability uh, could be determined uh, through an administrative process. And that administrative process would be developed, but it could look like uh, an affidavit from a, uh, the people uh, that would have to show that their number was, uh, was one of the numbers that was used to call in, their address was on the flyer, they, uh, uh, was, they were mailed uh, the flyer. We've got the names of 900 of the folks that called in. We've got the names and addresses of everybody that was, was mailed the flyer. So there are objective criteria with which to weigh the, uh, the claims that, uh, that they say will come forward. The amount of the, the number of the claims is, uh, is, 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 is guesswork for all of us, how many people will, will apply. Uh, and uh, I'm, I am sure 
that most people that are mailed the opportunity for claims um, are going to treat them like I do most of the class notifications I get, which is it's too complicated, I don't pursue it. Uh, uh, but, but regardless how many people uh, apply, they have to prove that they were on the objective list that we have. Uh, again, the, um, the defense and their uh, reply brief said we had not cited any obligation that they had to, uh, to maintain the list of the ups. And in our supplemental authority, we do cite uh, cases that speak to the duty of a, of a party to preserve evidence once they know the, uh, there's a legitimate dispute. And so here, the defendants knew in three ways about the fact that, that this contest was subject to uh, a, a, had, had big legal problems. Uh, there were numerous complaints to the uh, Nissan Consumer Affairs that were shared with the dealership during the contest. The D North Carolina Department of Justice wrote to the dealership saying we've got complaints about the, the, con the contest during the contest. Our client, uh, Gary uh, Surgeon, wrote to the defendants during the contest saying this thing is fraudulent. In, in face of that, where uh, both uh, everybody says the other, other party had the, uh, had the list of the ups, and that they were useful for dealerships, the list of the ups is gone. Now, maybe it's innocent, maybe it's not, but they had a duty to preserve those ups. Council, I'm gonna interrupt you there because yeah. you're making a persuasive argument on ascertainability. I'm not, you know, I think you have a strong argument there, but I, I wanna talk about the conflict of interest. And so you just mentioned, this is the question I have because you, again, have used this term ups. The court uses that in its analysis of whether or not it can certify a class. But then the class that the court certifies is much broader than the UPS. So I'm trying to figure out, in your view, what, what class is certified? UPS, UPS, uh, uh, UPS is a term of art. And as testified to by Brian Leachman, one of the defendants, um, and, and I'm, I'm gonna read it because it doesn't take long and it, and it cuts to the heart of the question. When you use the term ups, what do you mean? A person, individual, amount of people that showed up, came to the dealership, correct, okay. An up is somebody that came to the dealership in response to the flyer, that's correct. That is the class, that's the class that was certified. I understand that, but in the court's analysis of the class action, this is we talked about this uh, earlier when I was discussing with your friends, so this is record page 618. The court in doing the analysis says, the class consists of approximately 927 people who called the number and who showed up at the dealership, and then defines that as the ups. So whenever the court is doing the analysis and talking about the ups in its analysis of whether it can certify the class, it's talking about a group that both called and showed up, but then the class that ultimately certified is different. And you can see how the broader class has more problems. So you can see what we, this court is struggling with, which is did the court perhaps not engage in the full analysis it should have because it looked at a narrower part of the class 
to say with you, I can certify and then certify a, lar a much larger class in the end. Are you following me? I, I am. Yeah. I am, Your Honor. Uh, and, and I would say, given the testimony of, of Brian Leachman, and UP is defined as somebody that got the flyer and relied on that flyer to come to the dealership. The way you get to that, the way you help identify those are the indicia that we have of, about who they are. The clues as to who they are is, uh, is established in the list. Well, we, we have clues about who they are because we know the folks that call and we know the folks that set up to come. And, uh, and if, if they, uh, if the defendants have, have uh, messed up the opportunity to, to have a, a, a perfect, clean, wonderful list. And, and so we've got to go through the exercise of figuring out who they are. At trial, I would submit the, the question that the, uh, the jury will have is how many ups are there? And we say the list of ups that, that was presented, that was billed for, that was bragged about was 927. And then, then, uh, then A, if we get a verdict, B, if we ever get any money, C, if there's money to give, to, to distribute, then we get into the process of, of identifying them through these indicia of reliability that we have. So my understanding, you, I just want to be clear about what your position is. So your, is your position that when the court said the class is 927 people who called the number and who showed up at the dealership, N dash, the ups, the, then defining as the ups, that the court, that was kind of a mistake that the, everyone in the case understood ups to be something broader than that and the court narrowed it there? Is it a mistake? It, it, it could, it, admittedly, it could, have been, it could have been cleaner, Judge. And, and if, 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 if the court remands it to say, okay, tighten it up, fine. But we're, we're asking you, please, please don't uh, uh, reward these defendants for what they've done uh, and, uh, and, and de decertify them. Well, the reason I'm asking is, so let, let me then go to the next step of sort of a conflict of interest question, which is, um, you know, if you look at the mailer, it repeatedly says, you know, if your scratch off matches the number you have won, call the event hotline at this number and proceed to the dealership to claim your prize. And then it repeats that on the next, if, you know, you have if your number matches on the, on the backside, you have won, call this number, be sure to have your activation code ready, end of sentence, next sentence, then come to the dealership to claim your prize. So you can imagine a contract argument that the contest rules of the terms of the contract, if one exists, required you to do two steps. If you have the winning number, call, then go to dealership. But you can make a reasonable argument that someone looking at this would also say, I don't have to call, I have the winning number, this is just saying call to let them know I'm coming, but what I need to do is go to the dealership to claim my prize, and that's kind of the key criteria of acceptance. So you can see how your friend is arguing, we got this potential conflict, two different categories, one with maybe a much stronger contract argument than the other, the name class members are in one group and not the other, the one with the stronger argument, so there's a real risk that they're not gonna argue strongly enough for the, for the folks that just showed up at the dealership and have the weaker 
contract claim. So what's your response to that? My, my response, your, your Honor, is that by mailing the notice to the folks that called, uh, then the court is de facto saying that's, that's the class. The class includes the folks, uh, consists of the folks that called. And, and that's, that's my response to that. And I don't, I, I, Wait, don't, I, don't, I don't understand that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt, okay. but I just want to make sure. So are you saying the class is only consists of the people who The call? notice about the class goes to the folks that call. That, that's what, that's what the, the court determined. So would, if, to, to opt out. But would a member, could a member of the class include someone who did not call, who just got the mailer and said, oh, I won, and then drove into the dealership? If they got the flyer, yes, yes. Okay, well, th that was the the conflict that I think your friend is arguing is between two groups of people: the people you we were just just talking about earlier that called and then went to dealership, at versus the people who didn't call and went to the dealership and have a harder time making the contract argument because the contest rules said call us first and then come in. I, I, don't, I don't think uh, uh, the conflict among class members is going to. Uh, the, the class members are never going to get more than they're entitled to. In other words, uh, if, if I'm a class member with a flyer and I walked in, and I'm a class member, I called and I, and I walked in, I'm, neither one of us is ever going to be entitled to more than the other so that they, the, the, the conflict, it, it's not like... Uh, 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 because you win, I don't. And, th and that's my response to that. Well, I know that's your position, but I think your friends are going to disagree. I think they would cert they're going to make a contract argument that says even if the narrow group could win, the broader group cannot. Because the, the contract, which is the terms expressed in the mailer, required you, you know, repeatedly said, you've won, call this number, and then come to the dealership. And right. they will argue you know, we have to follow the plain terms of a contract. They didn't follow the terms if they just showed up and never called, so they didn't accept our offer, and they're not, you know, they lose the case even if these other folks win. And that, I think, is their argument of why there's a conflict of interest, because the named plaintiffs are in the group that doesn't have to worry about that argument, and, you know, so, and has little interest in defending against it, because they'll win regardless. The, 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 name, the named plaintiffs are here to pursue this case for themselves and the and the entire class, without a doubt, and and uh, they they're here to to pursue it. They 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 came. They they fit in both categories. You see, but you, the, your your honor has articulated, but they're they're here to stand up for everybody. They're they I, I I hear the conflict. I don't feel it, and I, I, I don't see it. Can I just follow up with one further question on this point? It, as, as you've let us know, on um, record page 622, the court orders that the, um, the class administrator shall mail by first class mail um, to the last known addresses of each of the approximately 1,167 people who called the telephone number on the contest flyer and made an appointment to come to the dealership for the sales event. So that's who's defined as gonna get notice. And if we have a situation where the court's own order 
um, in its operational definition of who should be identified as a class member is, not, is, is slightly more precise than its language defining the class. So, so if the language defining the class had said individuals who received the notice, called the dealership, and made an appointment, and who went to Nissan or Shelby, then the class definition and the operational order of how you carry it out would match. So if we're in a situation where the two don't match, what's the, what's the course of action this court should take? This court could remand and say, Judge Bridges, and Judge Bridges maintained uh, jurisdiction over, over the notice issue, tighten it up. You, 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 could, you could do that without this, uh, uh, taking away his his notion that this this really this this class action really fits the bill for an appropriate class action, given the the weighing and the balancing of the um, of the uh, opportunity for disparate results in a uh, in a multiple trials, and some of the disparate results are are. Uh, are really poignant in that these defendants, the liability piece on these defendants could be sorted out differently if they're multiple trials. The defendants need to have their culpability, if any, sorted out in one trial because each says the other did the, uh, the other um, uh, was responsible for this flyer. I didn't do anything. The other one told uh, uh, dealer compliance that uh, forgot to tell dealer compliance that uh, all the all the flyers had the same number, 801602. Uh, uh, for Travis Ostrom, the individual, the, the testimony of the uh, of the the folks that were running were, hey, we work for TKO Group. T what is TKO Group? TKO TKO Group is a non-corporate name, it, 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 it's a corporation that doesn't exist, it's a doing business as Travis Ostrom. Travis Ostrom is, is not, does not wanna uh, have to face multiple trials with multiple uh, uh, possible outcomes in, uh, in, the, uh, in the, the liability piece. So, this case, for, for, for those reasons, really um, screams out for uh, a, a one-time determination, and the uh, common issues do predominate. So just to follow up on Justice Zero's question, because that was also what I'm struggling with, is if, if we say to the trial court, this is just kind of internally inconsistent, we just, and to know that you engaged in the proper review of whether class can be certified, we just you know, want to send it back to fix these internal inconsistencies. If we were doing that, in your view, which way is it going? Is the new order saying the class is everyone who showed up at the dealership, doesn't matter if they called first and made an appointment, or is it only the people who called, made the appointment, and went to the dealership? I'm thinking on my feet now, Your Honor, please, but I would say y y Your Honor articulated the call, call and make an appointment class is, ha has, a, a niftier contract claim than than the broader claim. I, I think they're both good, but if if and and it um, and it um, uh, eliminates 
some of the uh, matching that you'll have to do otherwise. So uh, I, I, I concede it's a tighter class, and and we're we're we, we're certainly willing to have it tightened up and go forward in in that regard. I think I've touched on near about everything uh, that I, I wanted to, uh, and I, I would like to state that uh, I'm, a, I'm a veteran lawyer, and I've been around a long time, and this is my very first time in the Supreme Court, and, uh, and it's been an honor, and I appreciate my partner letting me come up here and make this uh, argument. I appreciate the opportunity to represent the class, and I was told that when you run out of things to say, even though you got more time, go ahead and sit down. So I'm going to do that. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. Um, may I please the court? There, they've submitted cases on spoliation. Obviously, that is a jury issue at the end of a case. They're essentially arguing that it should relieve them of the burden of ascertainability, which is a constitutional issue. There is no evidence in the record that there was a regulation or a law or an even internal policy saying that these records should be kept. In other cases, they tender up. Those policies were there. Furthermore, they intentionally blur the factual record with six different parties and throwing out with an extremely broad brush, they, plural, should have known to preserve, to preserve what? We turn ourselves back to the factual record itself and the deposition testimony that was there. As my co-counsel mentioned, when we go back to their brief and show what is their citation that these records actually existed, the 925 is a number. It's not an address list. It's a number. It's a number of people who came in. There is no record evidence in this case that there was ever names or addresses for those 925 people. Because the way this whole process works is the advertising company, A to Z, which is my client, wants to show the auto dealership that since we put up these banners and we sent out these things, more people came into your dealership than they did last week. There is no record evidence that those 925 names were ever recorded or were ever lost. There is some evidence that there were credit ratings. One of the plaintiffs testified, I wrote out a triplicate form. That plaintiff says she wrote out a triplicate form. To leap from that to suggest that therefore there were triplicate forms for 125 people 
or 925 people is complete fabrication in the record we have and which Judge Bridges had when he wrote this order. There is no evidence in this case to support the ascertainability. The aspect of 2,000 calls. Yes, we do have the names of the people who called in, but there is no way to know whether they actually went in. Of the 925 who went in, there is no way to know factually how many of them had a flyer in their hand and didn't just see the balloons on the road when they drove by. These become factual problems in the case, which become burdens of constitutional ascertainability, which the plaintiffs cannot surmount. And what they are attempting to do with the essentially the spoliation argument is take what is their constitutional burden and punt it down the road to an administrative process. That is not how the law is supposed to work on Rule 23. There are due process, serious due process constitutional safeguards for dependents because it is presumed we are allowed to cross-examine and that we are giving that up in some measure. Um, it is, well, I still have two and a half minutes. The, the Blix case, we believe, is directly on point. It did not, we acknowledge, reverse a class that was certified, but factually there were 978 faxes sent to customers and the class was defined as those people who received the fax but did not want to receive it. That is factually similar to ours except we have the mirror image, people who got the mailer and then intended, that's inherently part of the contract, is I intended to go in claiming my prize. And in the Blix case, the court says that whether they wanted to not get those faxes is inherently an individual problem, which is not appropriate for a class action. We have the mirror image of that exact same class here, because in order to make their contract claims, of some level of intent, I intended to come in and claim my prize, is in, like in the Blix case, an inherently individual contract claim. Um, in order to be a class action, there must be a single legal issue that could be resolved equally for all, and here it's the opposite, is that in order to make their contract claim because of uh, in, a, in a unilateral contract, there's not a meeting of the minds, but there's still their intent. And in order to do that, that would have to be uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of mini trials, which is exactly why it should not be a class action. I have 28 seconds left. Uh, thank you, Justices, for your attention. Thank you, Counsel. Thank you.